Right now, I want to invite up our uh, lead pastor, Pastor Charles, to give us a word this morning. Let's welcome up Charles. Thank you, Mike. A great worship, a lot of stuff going on here, huh? It's just hard to keep track of it all. Um, they will be on our website. There are a lot of life groups, small groups, weekly groups, stuff like that is going to get launched. And so if you're interested in any of that, they will be on our website as well, just for you to know. Okay, so my name is Charles, the pastor here, and welcome to the river, especially to those of you who are coming for the first time. It's good to have you. I hope your year is off to a good start. Giants lost yesterday. <laughs> my son was very upset, but, you know, he's been a lifelong Giants fan, so, you know, but they've gone pretty far, right? It's uh, more than was expected, so we got to be happy about that. All right, we are in a sermon series called Impossible Questions, Fresh Perspective. So far, we have addressed some really tough questions like, um, why does the list of sin keep changing? And the fo we follow that up with, is the Bible inerrant? without error. If not, why follow it? Uh, these were some good sermons, yeah? Well, if I may say so myself. <laughs> so check it out if you missed it. Good stuff. And today, we follow it up with another impossibly tough question. That is, if there is a good God, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you thought about this at all? The suffering has challenged theologians throughout the ages, the problem of suffering. Because suffering can challenge our faith. Suffering hardens our hearts. Suffering makes it hard to believe God is on our side. If God is good, if God is love, how can horrible things happen to good people, right? Right? How can innocent children suffer with horrible diseases like cancer? If God is up there and watching, in control, omnipotent, omniscient, controlling all things, how can God stay silent in the face of our suffering? That has been a very tough question, right? For people of faith, for ages. So there have been many thoughts. But today I'd like to offer some perspective. I mean, it's impossible to answer, but hopefully I can give you some perspective that can help us move forward. So the first, I'd like to begin by asking, so... Does God control every little thing that happens on earth? There are Bible passages to support this view. Because this is the, the, the assumption, right, that makes it so hard to answer our question. And today, I'd like to say, I believe such a view might not pass the test of agape. Remember last Sunday I talked about how 
the Bible advises us that every important question must pass the test of agape, unconditional love, because God is agape. We looked at that together, right? To keep us safe from misunderstanding the Bible because the church has made huge mistakes throughout history. Misreading the Bible, misunderstanding God when they were so sure they knew what they were thinking and talking and believing. Prime example being God came to God's own people and was rejected and crucified. That's a pretty big mistake, don't you think, for the church to have made? Uh, can't, get even, can't get worse. Bad mistake. That's why people of faith has to stay humble. Because human language and human concepts cannot capture God in all of God's glory. We're limited by our imagination, our concepts, our language, our biases. So just because we see something in the Bible plainly doesn't mean that we really know what God was intending to say because as we talked about last week, the Bible itself describes the Bible as a product of human and God. And so the Bible is heavily influenced and our reading of the Bible is heavily limited by our culture, our language, our imagination, our thoughts. So I can see how in the old days, when people had kings and emperors and you know, rulers and thrones, it made sense for them to describe God in terms of God sitting on a throne, controlling, ruling with power. These were the terms, probably in those days, these were the terms that could, they, these were the best terms they could think of to describe God's glory and God's majesty. But in light of today's science and what we know, like for example, in light of like vastness of this universe, and really the glory of this universe, it's unthinkable how vast it is. Do we really think that the infinite God who created this unthinkable universe, this existence is like some tribal king sitting on a throne and just obsessively concerned about how many followers are singing God's praises, trying to control every little thing. It may not be that way. I mean, does God really control when you go to the bathroom? Do you think that, right? Does God control the way we laugh or cry? Is all of creation just simply puppeteered by God? There are theologies that tell us so. But I believe this kind of control precludes love. Love and control don't go together. And when you're talking about this level of control, there, there's no possibility of love to exist if that's the way it is. I mean, why bother? How boring and meaningless all of existence would be if, if it was just all puppeteered by God. Why bother? Now, you might object thinking of all these Bible verses that does say how God controls everything even down to little sparrows. I know all about those passages. I'm not discounting them. But there are also Bible passages that 
show clearly God is not controlling everything down to the little details. For example, Moses pleased with God to change what God was going to do, was about to do. The Bible says, so God changed God's mind. What this tells us is that as God interacts with humanity, God changed the divine plan, right? How else to understand this verse? God was intending to do something, was about to do something, and Moses pleased, and God says, eh, okay, we'll change. Right? There is a genuine interaction here that changes God's plan, God's mind. How to understand this? Some theologians argue that God really didn't change anything. It was all pre-planned. It was all according to God's will, every little thing. As if, you know, God controlled Moses, right? God, like, puppeteered him, like, I will make Moses. I will make Moses say so-and-so. And then, I will say so-and-so, and it will look like I changed my mind, but really, no, it was all preset, arranged, it was all pre-planned, fuja, you know? I mean, that's actually disturbing. If that's really what happened, that's deranged. Don't you think? I mean, do we think God is deranged? Character like that, playing with little dolls, like, eh. Now, I assure you, there are many passages indicating our choices do matter. It's not all puppeteered by God. So we can't just... Look at the passages talking about how God is in control, how God doesn't change God's mind because God is not like man, that God is all-knowing. Yeah, there are those passages. But there are also other passages that say very different things. And so we can't just focus on one side. That's like cutting up the Bible to just justify whatever we want to believe and just argue, right? We have to take note of all of it. We need to take more care, especially because words like God's in control have been used throughout history to oppress and hurt people. For example, slavery. The church used the concept of God's sovereignty as a reason for slaves to remain slaves as submission to God's will, as obedience, citing Bible passages like how slaves must obey their masters as unto Christ himself. That rebelling or trying to escape was rebelling against God, that there will be eternal consequences for them. This kind of stuff was preached, especially during the Civil War. So many churches preached slavery was God's will. It was said, God rules. Citing passages like Exodus chapter 9, that descendants of Canaan, the dark-skinned people, must serve white masters, that that was God's will. Using this obscure passage and twisting it to justify whatever they were doing. Just self-serving. People do that. I mean, it's unbelievable, but that kind of teaching was taught even into 20th century. 
It was only like 30, 40 years ago that church in South Africa apologized for teaching that into like 1980s. So with such history in mind, we have to be careful about concepts like God's in control, saying things like God rules everything. It's one thing to say such things when we are in privileged position, when the system favors us and things kind of work out for us, right? You can kind of like say those things and feel like, yeah, God's on our side and you feel good. But if you were a dark-skinned American, say a slave 300 years ago, or descended from dark-skinned people and still scarred by its mentality today, to hear that God controls sets and sets all things in history, that can sound like God meant for slavery to happen, just as the church taught for so many centuries. So do we think that today? I hope not. I hope none of us sitting here is thinking, yeah, God, it was God's will that slavery happened. Can we agree on that? I hope not. <laughs> Let's agree that it was never God's will for such cruel things as slavery to happen in history. Amen? Amen. Amen. So words and theology like God reigns, God controls all things in history for our good, such words hit different people differently. Let's acknowledge that. And it's not just slavery. How do we reconcile such theology that says God sets everything in history with the historical fact of Holocaust, for example? Did God arrange for the gas chambers to like happen? I mean, do we really believe that? I don't think we can, right? That would be blasphemy. That insults God's fundamental character and what the Bible teaches us so clearly again and again and again that God is love. It is a fundamental violation of what we believe about God. That's what I believe. I hope you agree. So now, if you agree with me that such cruelty is never God's will because God is love, then lots and lots of things happen on earth at the level of final death that are not according to God's wishes. And there is a lot of passages in the Bible to support that view. Overwhelming, in fact. The Bible tells us God grieves. God repent. God gets angry. God is frustrated at the stubbornness of people's hearts. It's as if God can't just force it all to happen according to God's wishes. God is somehow constrained by the rules God set for, you know, the whole of existence or something. Like God can't just make everything happen. That's very clear. So when the Bible does say stuff like God is in control, what does that mean? How do we understand that? Because so many of us have experienced 
God at work. In profound ways, such that it does feel like it's not just chaos. It feels like God has a plan. It feels like we are safe in God's hands. Right? Have you had experiences like that? You have this sense that, yes, there is this you know, presence that is moving through history, moving through your life, my life, that there is something that is holding us together, moving forward. And maybe that's why you are sitting here instead of like enjoying Sunday morning at Starbucks, right? I mean, why bother, right? I mean, you must sense something in your heart, in your soul, this presence. So, to reconcile all of this, what if we thought of God another way? What if it's more like God is divine and we are the branches? And that's how Jesus described God and us. Now, I've talked about this uh, before, but there are many people here that Never heard me talk about it. It's New Year, Open House Sunday. So let's reflect just for a moment on this imagery as it applies to what I have been talking about. So in this image, God is not up there sitting on a throne, right? That's not this image. Rather, God is all around us. In fact, we get everything we need from the vine. As the Bible teaches us, we live and move and have our being in God. We're little branches in the vine. We're connected to the vine. We have our being in God. God is all of creation, reality. It's the vine that just all of it. We're just little, little itty-bitty branches, <laughs> right? So using the image of God as the vine... The vine is pushing up everything the branches need, all the nutrients we need to live and grow and bear fruit. And fruit represents the reality that takes shape from our choices. Notice, the vine does not bear fruit. It's the branches that bear fruit. So we can think of reality as taking shape as work of partnership between the vine and the branches. Even though God is the vine that makes all of life possible and holds us all, it's up to us, the branches, to manifest what will actually be the reality from our choices. So it's human and God, just as God, just as Jesus is human and God. It's like the creation account from Exodus. God said, let the earth produce fruit. Before this invitation from God to earth, there was no possibility of fruit. There was only the barren space. There was no potential for any fruit to take place. But once God speaks, fruit becomes possible, and it's the earth that does the work of choosing which kind of fruit. How does it all work? How does the fruit come up? which potential possibility becomes the actual reality. You see how that system would work? So one way to describe this process is God invites and we respond and remarkable things happen 
in this ongoing partnership of creation. Many scholars think that as human beings, our ability to envision a better future unimagined before is the most powerful tool we have. We have this tool to shape reality creatively. So to sum it up, how this partnership works is God sets up the parameters of what is possible, what the possibilities are, and we shape the fruit, choosing which possibility becomes reality. This is an insight from what's called process theology. This is a major, major school of theological thought these days. And the process theology says God doesn't control every little thing and set every little thing as if we are puppets. But God sets the parameters of what is possible, all the possibilities. And we choose which possibility becomes reality. And these are genuine choices. So in such a context, suffering becomes very possible. Because different branches are making different choices. Some branches may choose to like just choke off the branches next to them, right? Just grow over them and like choke them off and do things like that. And God will respect such a choice. Because otherwise, it all reverts to puppetry. So suffering can happen randomly outside God's will, even if God is in overall control as the vine. In such a context, bad things can happen to good people. And I believe this is by God's design, because if only good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, then everyone will be forced to be good, right? It would, in effect, be God puppeteering everyone with strings of reward and punishment. You know, if that were the case, you can't have love. Becomes impossible to have love in such a context because love must come from the heart. And I believe, with all my heart, I believe that the purpose behind all of creation, the point of existence, is to make it possible for love to exist. Specifically, agape, unconditional love. For God is agape, Meaning of existence lies in agape. I believe that's why we live those moments of love that is genuine, authentic, coming from the heart. Those are pressure things. I mean, don't you think so? I mean, when you watch movies or stuff like that, that's when you like really your heart moves. Uh, just my wife and I just watched Avatar. Anybody watch Avatar 2? Pretty good, I thought. The whole movie was about kids running for their lives and parents trying to save them. But that's about love, isn't it? There is that, that tugs at us, love. See, God as the vine is attempting to move all of creation towards agape. But he cannot be forced so God influences, God in inspires, God woos our hearts, but God does not force. Because as soon as force comes in, it's over. There's no possibility of love. Force cannot be in there. So this is the bend in the arc of history I talked about last week, right? 
Because we have to ask, why is it only a bend? Why can't we just go straight? Why can't this world just be just and fair and loving and everyone just loves one another, kumbaya, right? We're all good. Why can't God just make that happen? Why does it just go bend, not just, right? Well, it's because God only does influence. That's all that can be done if you want love. Agreed? Anyway, all this is to say, if you are willing to change some assumptions about how to conceive of God, if you are willing to be a little more flexible and open, our minds to theology like process theology that reconciles differing and con conflicting passages in the Bible, instead of just focusing on one side, ignoring like half the Bible and just looking at your side and just saying, look, this is what the Bible says, I am right, you are wrong. If we're willing to be humble and try to look at all of it, then we can wrap our minds around issues like why do bad things happen to good people. It starts to make sense. With that in mind, I have some suggestions on how to let this impact our day-to-day -day life. My first practical suggestion is, first, suffering does not mean God has abandoned you. When hard things happen, we are immediately tempted to think, well, God is punishing me. God is not on my side. I must have done something wrong. Or you blame yourself. Or you blame God. Or you resent. Right? I do that. And I'm a pastor. And so I'm pretty sure everyone does this. Right? But the, what the Bible teaches us is that God is always on our side. God is divine, always cheering on every branch to be as fruitful and life-filled as possible. It's not God is doing it to you. No, it's happening and God is on your side encouraging you, being your friend, trying to influence you towards agape and life in every way possible. God is always on your side. So don't ever think just because suffering is happening that you did something wrong, or that God is punishing you. No. Think of yourself as the branch with creative power to bear fruit in a good way. No matter what's happening, no matter what's constraining you, no matter what's hitting you, always believe within what is possible, what can I do to make the best out of what is happening? Amen? I want to show you a video to that effect that is very inspiring. It's from a boy named Sam Byrne. Please watch it with us. A few years ago, before my freshman year in high school, I wanted to play snare drum in the Foxborough High School marching band. However, 
and it was a dream that I just had to accomplish. But each snare drum and harness weighed about 40 pounds each. And I have a disease called progeria. So just to give you an idea, I weigh about only 50 pounds. So logistically, I really couldn't carry a regular size snare drum. And because of this, the band director assigned me to play pit percussion during the halftime show. Now, pit percussion was fun. Uh, it involved some really cool auxiliary percussion instruments like the bongos, timpani, and timbales, and cowbell. So it was fun, um, but it involved no marching, and I was just so devastated. However, nothing was going to stop me from playing snare drum with the marching band in the halftime show. So my family and I worked with an engineer to design a snare drum harness that would be lighter and easier for me to carry. And so after continuous work, uh, we made a snare drum apparatus that weighs only about six pounds. <laughs> I'm just gonna give you some more information about progeria. Um, it affects only about 350 kids today worldwide. So it's pretty rare. And effects of progeria include tight skin, lack of weight gain, uh, stinted growth, and heart disease. Last year, my mom and her team of scientists published the first successful progeria treatment study. And because of this, I was interviewed on NPR. And John Hamilton asked me the question, what is the most important thing that people should know about you? And my answer was simply that I have a very happy life. Thank you. So even though there are many obstacles in my life, with a lot of them being created by progeria, I don't want people to feel bad for me. I don't think about these obstacles all the time, and I'm able to overcome most of them anyway. So I'm here today to share with you my philosophy for a happy life. So for me, there are three aspects to this philosophy. So this is a quote from the famous Ferris Bueller. The first aspect to my philosophy is that I'm okay with what I ultimately can't do because there's so much that I can do. Now, people sometimes ask me questions like, isn't it hard living with progeria? Or what daily challenges of progeria do you face? And I'd like to say that even though I have progeria, most of my time is spent thinking about things that have nothing to do with progeria at all. Now, this doesn't mean that I ignore the negative aspects of these obstacles. When I can't do something like run a long distance or go on an intense roller coaster, you know, I, I know what I'm missing out on. But instead, I choose to focus on the activities that I can do for things that I'm passionate about, like scouting or music or comic books or any of my favorite Boston sports teams. Yeah. So, <laughs> however, sometimes I need to find a different way to do something by making adjustments. And I want to put those things in the can-do category, kind of like you saw with the drum earlier. So here's a clip with me playing Spider-Man with the Foxborough High School marching band at halftime a couple years ago.
Thank you. <clears throat> all right, all right. So that was pretty cool. Uh, and so I was able to accomplish my dream of playing snare drum with the marching band, as I believe I can do for all of my dreams. So hopefully you can accomplish your dreams as well with this outlook. Okay, so hello everyone. Uh, I'm Sam, and I just turned 17. A few years. I yeah, isn't that inspiring? There's more if you want to go look it up. <laughs> but I find that so inspiring that he doesn't think about what is not possible for him. You know, he doesn't waste his time resenting. You know, how did I? Why did I? Why am I saddled with this when everybody else is okay? Why, why resenting, blaming? He doesn't waste any time doing that, it sounds like. Instead, within the constraints of his life, he tries to creatively find a way to achieve as many of his dreams as he can. That is life of faith. That pleases God. That is what it means to really live with faith, that you can actually create something, that you believe that your life has meaning, no matter what is happening, that within the constraints, you try to find the path forward. So I want us to be more like Sam. I believe that's what pleases God. We believe God is our friend instead of giving up and just going into just collapsing, right? And if we keep to such faith, we can all leave a mark in this creation. Just as Sam has left a mark and inspired millions of people, we can all leave a mark as branches as we live with our lives. So that's what I would like for all of us, and I'd like to pray for us um, towards that. God, thank you that our life does have meaning, that it's not all puppetry, that even through suffering, we want to embrace love. We want to point our lives towards agape, Help us, O oh God, to open our hearts, soften our hearts, open us to more of faith, more of love, more of life, more of creativity. Help us to see what we can't see by ourselves. Lift us higher. Open our eyes. And take us to places where there is true satisfaction that comes from living in agape. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat>